my like my definition of entrepreneurial is doing whatever it takes welcome to another edition of the columbia university sports podcast the cusp show where we talk about business and media and learning and coaching and teaching and lots of other things uh, i'm joe favorito along with my co-host tom richardson tom welcome back Hi, Joe. It's good to be with you for another one. And I'm super excited about today's episode. So why don't you just let's get right into it because we've yeah. got an amazing guest. And, and and we've had a couple of other coaches on before, both Columbia coaches, other places. We've had Joe Madden on uh, and we love talking about leadership. So uh, our guest today has a new book out called Rapture, which I've read. Tom uh, Richardson will be reading and Tom Cerny will be reading soon. Uh, but our guest today is the head coach of the Toronto Raptors, uh, Nick Nurse. Nick, thanks for joining the Cusp Show. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to see you. Looking forward to a enjoyable chat here. Great. Cool. Um, so let's, first of all, the, the one question was, why did you do the book now? Obviously, it probably was a little bit coming since uh, the Raptors won the title. Uh, and did you have goals going into this as to what the stories were that you wanted to tell? Well, the the book came about a little bit like how everything for me came about. The, the assistant sports editor from the Carroll Daily Times Herald in my hometown of Carroll, Iowa, came to me and said, um, hey, um, how about we do a book on your story of going from Carroll, Iowa to becoming an NBA head coach? And I kind of said, yeah, I would kind of plan maybe on doing a book someday, which might be a little little early to start in, but let's let's start in on it. And and um, one thing kind of led to another and, and uh, we had a good season and Little Brown Publishing got involved and, and uh, Mike Sokolov and David Black, some big names in writing and sports writing, et cetera. And, and the timing seemed to be pretty good to go ahead and try to wrap it up. We added a couple good chapters after, uh, after that first season in Toronto, that's for sure. So that's, that's it. And boy, it's hard to decide what to put in it. You know, um, there's a lot that needs to go in, but you or you'd like to have in, but you need to kind of keep it moving and keep it keep it uh, interesting. And we just tried to touch on a lot of different areas on the long, winding road that we took to get to the NBA. Cool. Um, along that road, um, we can talk a little bit about Europe and the G League and and some of the other places and the assistant coaches and the summer league. One of the things you touch on in the book which I thought was great is self-directed learning and how kind of along the way you had either, especially starting as one of the youngest coaches, you had to either teach yourself or learn from somebody else. Can you talk a little bit about self-directed learning and then Tom Richardson, we can get into Phil Jackson and mm -hmm. Chris Mullen and everybody else as well. So, yeah, you know, the book kind of opens up talking about my family having a pole vaulting pit in the backyard Yep. I have five older brothers and one of them showed up one day with a pole vaulting pole from, from school that I think, I think was got broken or something and they were getting ready to throw away. He brought it home. And the next thing you know, we're, we're building a pole vaulting pit in the backyard. Well, what's, <laughs> what's the relevancy of that? Well, then we started reading, we started, we started ordering these pole vaulting books, how to become great pole vaulters, you know, so we were reading these, these manuals on drills to do and the technique and, and all this stuff, you know, believing we were going to be Olympic champions if we if we read these books and learned how to do it right and all that kind of stuff. Now, 
none of us went to the Olympics. We did set some school records and won, won a few local track meets and things like that. But, but um, I wasn't necessarily uh, the, the athlete for pole vaulting, but we did it. We did, we did have good form. Let's put it that way. But mm. I think that's where it started, you know, and I think um, uh, really believe my mother was a teacher. So I got the kind of that education, lifelong learning thing in, in my blood from that side of the family um, when I went to England the first time, I really was going there to try to learn about my craft, see if I was any good, study film, read books, go to clinics, do as much as I could just to kind of take a deep dive on the subject of, of coaching. Yeah. So, so Nick, I'm curious about when, when you were in your early years of coaching, who were your coaching idols? Like who did you learn lessons from or pay attention to most? Well, you know, obviously you've got some, some close ones, right? Your high school coach, my, my high school coach, Wayne Chanley was a phenomenal coach and, and uh, really, really understood the game from a fundamental aspect and a defensive aspect. My college coach, Eldon Miller, again, one of the, one of the best there ever was and a, and a true gentleman and a great defensive coach as well. So learned a lot there. When I went to England, you kind of get put out on a remote um, island uh basketball wise especially because it's not you know there isn't a whole lot of basketball on tv there's not a uh, a bunch of people trying to coach you're not you're not you know hanging around with guys talking hoops much because there isn't anybody talking hoops so you are kind of there just uh, zeroing in on it yourself i and i ended up ordering um vhs tapes uh from a company in switzerland and and they were of the bulls games you know it was the 90s and the bulls were rolling and everybody was enamored everybody in basketball was enamored with those so i always i always say phil jackson was one of my mentors he didn't know it <laughs> he didn't know it but I, I was studying everything he said and every movement he made and every timeout he called watching those bulls games. i must have watched them all 20 or 30 times there was no there was nothing else to watch and that's what i was studying our team was running the triangle offense. And, and um, so that's, that's one, there's three coaches there I would credit as, as mentors. Just a quick follow-up on that, Nick. Um, I, I'm curious because Jackson was known as an iconoclast, uh, partly because of his life philosophy and just his intellectual approach to things, which I think we've all been fascinated by. Were you attracted when you were younger more to his X's and O's and coaching stuff or kind of the philosophical stuff? Well, I would say this, I would say that like a lot of people, when you watch them play, the triangle was fascinating. It was, it was so unique and different to what everybody else was doing. It was an era where everybody was dribbling the ball down, throwing it into the low post the entire game and playing from there. And that was kind of, you know, that wasn't that, that aesthetically pleasing, but watching the triangle and these guys shifting and doing all these reactions and seemingly doing it with, with such fluidity and the ball movement and the cutting again, is what kind of initially um, just was was beautiful to my eyes, you know, sitting there to watch it. And then obviously you start when he came out with a couple of his books, you know, he wrote Sacred Hoops and the fascinating uh, stories in there and, and uh, his philosophies. And then digging back, I went and got one of his co copy of Maverick that he wrote in the 70s, that, you know, when he was playing for the Knicks. And That's just right. again, then you start becoming a, a big fan of, of, of him and who he is and who, wh where he learned from and his philosophies, uh, et cetera. So I guess a little bit of both, but it probably started off with just watching the basketball. Yeah. How, do you want, um, to, do you want me to go, Tom? I'll yeah, sure. Go for it. Um, talk a little bit about the way you've kind of 
evolved your communication skills with players? I mean, the, the Raptors are known for playing music in practice. You know, you talk a lot in the book about listening and the value of listening. Uh, how have you developed that kind of narrative in communicating with players? Obviously, they've changed a lot from when you were a very young coach in Europe to what's going on now with the Raptors to the G League. So how has that evolved? The communication skill has evolved over time for you. Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky. Another another coach that I didn't mention that I talk a lot about in the book is a guy named Daryl Mudra. He was actually the football coach at the University of Northern Iowa when I was going there, uh, appropriately nicknamed Dr. Victory. He had some incredible turnarounds in college football in a number of uh, institutions, but he, he used to coach from the press box. And he's, his democratic style of letting his assistants coach and do their thing and letting the players have input and letting the players play really hit home on me uh, as a college student. I think he was way ahead of his time. And uh, it was interesting for me to kind of start studying some of those ideas and thoughts. And when I went to England, I was about a 26 year old um, taking over a team. I, I was coaching guys my age or older. And uh, I, thought, I thought it'd be silly not to ask them for their input, you know, and, and what they thought and how things go. And I'd say, here's how I see it. How do you see it? And we kind of come together and and, you know, everybody's kind of got ownership of this thing and, and a common goal of trying to win the championship. Um, but I think a lot of that starts with with just being willing to communicate, being willing to listen. Um, and then and then again, being willing to try. I always say to the players, listen, get ready. I'm going to try some stuff or I'll try some of your stuff. But listen, we're, we're, if it works, we're going to keep it and put it in our toolbox. If it doesn't work, we're going to crumple it up as fast as we can and, and throw it in the garbage can, move on and try something else. So so I think that's kind of just an open um, statement or an open philosophy that you share with them right away. And let's let's uh, let's experiment and let's polish and shape and change directions and remain flexible if we can. When you um, I'm going to give you a line from the book, which I've actually used in my class now, uh, and you can tell a little bit about it. I think this was uh, when you were in the G League. There's a fine line between entrepreneurial, between being entrepreneurial and desperate. I'm not sure what side. <laughs> I, so I, I think Tom and I spend a lot of time in that lunatic fringe. Uh, I think most people these days are somewhere between those two. Yeah. yeah. How did it come about? And, and how did you, you know, talk a little bit about the G League experience, especially because that was another, you know, kind of pivot in your career as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, First of all, the statement is it, it, it's so close to the truth, right? I think my like my definition of entrepreneurial is doing whatever it takes, and you got to do whatever it takes to make it happen, right? And and that's really close to that line that we're we're riding here about being desperate, and and I you know I think that. Um, Geez, listen, I was I was winning a lot of games in England and, and even in Europe and I was having a lot of success, but it just it wasn't registering at all in the United States in the coaching. I couldn't get a, an assistant job. I couldn't get an assistant job in the D League. I was trying and trying and we had to start our own team in my home state of Iowa and uh, name myself the head coach is, is how to <laughs> kind of keep going. And and luckily we were able to pull all that off. But there was a lot of desperate moments and and, um, you know, like, what are we going to do next? And, and um, I don't know, just, it's, it's, um, it's, it's easy to look back on now that it's turned out, but there's a lot of sleepless nights there when you're, in, when you're riding that line. Yeah, the, the funny story, Tom, which you'll see in the book is you were literally driving by the arena, right? You said, here's a great arena. Why isn't there a G League team? And then you went and found someone who could actually finance it, right? 
Yeah, literally, I I didn't even know the arena was there or anything and and, um, was back on a trip from Europe and and, uh, pulled over and called. And I didn't go in, but I I parked in the parking lot of the arena and called the the, and asked to speak to the general manager. And and I played at Northern Iowa and I coached at Grandview there in town. So people, you know, I got through to him and talked to him and he said, yeah, we'd love to have a a D-League. It was a D-League back then, G-League team here. and, And then I called the uh, Phil Evans, who was the president at the at the D League at the time, and said, "How about Des Moines, Iowa?" He said, "Perfect market." And then I was like, "Now what?" Right? And um, uh, called one guy in town, a lawyer by the name of Jerry Crawford, and uh, he said, "Come on down to my office." And we started figuring out a way to try to finance the thing, and got a whole. It was a really unique, great idea. They made a they made a big pie and cut it into about six pieces. And, uh, and within those six pieces, let, let groups uh, go, go out and get more people. And, and they got, you know, what he said is he wanted to get like uh, the 30-somethings, people, the, people that were going to be in town for the next 20 years to support the team and, and help sell season tickets and all that kind of stuff. So the pie ended up, even though it was only six slices, ended up being from a lot of different demographics and a lot of different ages of, of successful people around town that want to be part of professional basketball. Hey, I got a question for you, Nick, about that, some of that leadership um, knowledge you had to bring to the Raptors. So once you made the jump, and I guess it was 2018 to the NBA, which, which, uh, which must, have been, must have been very exciting. Suddenly you went from coaching a lot of uh, players who are probably quite modest, both in terms of their income and, and, and even their just personalities into an environment that is often called a player's league and the modern NBA typically being constructed in a way where you've got, and I know this is a little bit of a generalization, but two or three superstars with another 10 or 10 or 11, uh, not superstars. Did you have to really think that through how you would suddenly approach these superstars? So you had Kawhi Leonard, for example, uh, or I think of like the example we just witnessed in the finals with Jimmy Butler uh, on the one end of the spectrum and Tyler Hero as a young guy on the other end. Do you, what do you do as a leader to deal with that disparity? Well, um, really good question, right? I think the first thing is this, is, is that NBA guys, whether they're Jimmy Butler or Tyler Hero, want to be coached, right? They want, you to, they want you to give them a good game plan. They want you to try and sit down and talk to them about their dreams and visions for their career, for the immediate season, um, et cetera. And then, then develop a plan and, and work together with them on trying to reach some of those goals individually. You know, it's, you're, you're, I talk about that a lot in the book too. There's, there's a, it'd be great if everybody went to the, went to the gym every day and was thinking only about the team. That's, that's not realistic, right? There's individual goals. It's the way these guys make a living. There's aspirations and those things got to be interwoven with the team's goals and, and what the, what the team's trying to accomplish. So the main thing is um, um, I think you, you do the best you can to get these guys ready, prepare them, right? You give them, you give them great ideas and great game plans. You're willing to roll up your sleeves and get out there on the court with them. You're willing to put your arm around them if they need them. And you're willing to get on them once in a while if they need that too. Right. Again, it's just kind of the feel of, of coaching. I, if, if you don't mind a quick follow-up on that, because I've always been really fascinated by Greg Popovich, as many basketball fans are, and you inherited one of the great 
Spurs coming to the Raptors a couple of years ago and Kawhi. Um, did you did you learn stuff from Kawhi channeled from Popovich? Do you know well, what I mean? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think I learned a lot from all the guys. I would say the uniqueness of that was, you know, as a first-year head coach and you're getting a guy like Kawhi, again, who's coached by a guy like Popovich, one of the legends, you, are, you know, you are a little bit, uh, I, I would, you know, you're wondering what he's thinking about you in the first right. couple of days of practice because he's been coached by the legend, right? And and here you are, a rookie coach, and um and again, I think I think it probably took him a little time to get used to me. Um, I think there was certainly a, a getting to know each other period going both ways. But again, I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do my best and I'm trying to keep my ears open. I'm trying to share with, with him as much as I can. One of the things uh, that obviously we're all dealing with is the uncertainty and the a lot of people have dealt with loss, whether it's jobs or other things. Uh, in the book, you talked a lot about when you got to the Raptors and were about to be hired by Brian Colangelo, and lo and behold, Brian Colangelo uh, loses his job, and you were in this uncertain period. And, and you've been, you've lost jobs in other places. You lost a job in Europe. How do you deal with two pieces of loss? One is overcoming the short term of, of losing a game, but the changes in careers. And what do you tell people when they come to you to say, "Look, I've been through this." Are there things that you learn from there that you pass on to? to your young players or just people looking for information? Well, I think one of the key things that I, that I am fortunate, I think I went through or, or fortunate that I felt was uh, you, you mentioned the one where I was in the, in the D league and almost getting ready to get called up, but I was, it's kind of in that realm for a few years. I'd, I'd won a D league title at Iowa. I'd won several division championships. I'd had 20 plus players called up and, and I was getting, five questions a week of how come you're not in the NBA? How come you're not in the NBA? How can, and, and it really didn't bother me. It, there was no, no angst there at all because I understood the value of what I was learning, where I was at being a head coach for those 50, 60 games every year in the, in the D league is super challenging guys. There's, there's nothing more challenging than that. Your guys are coming and going and you're recreating chemistry and roles and team management and, and, the, and, uh, teaching how to learn quickly because players are coming in the night before games and all those things that I, I knew were invaluable. I knew I, I could feel I was getting to become a better coach. So yeah, I wanted to be in the NBA as soon as possible, but I also understood that I was learning invaluable things where I was at in the minor leagues. And his loss, how does loss, you know, we always see people talking about winning and how important winning yeah. is. And we could talk about winning before we let you go and what that was like, but do you learn more from the losses that you've had over time or the jobs that you've lost or the things that, that you've gone through on the negative side more than the positive side? And are there a couple of things that you can pull out of that? Well, I'd really love to tell you guys that I, I treat both imposters the same, winning and losing, right? But uh, I, think, I think human nature, you know, it stings you a little bit when you get, you get beat and you got to pull your socks up a little higher and a little tighter and get back to work. I think, I think the focus that you have once you need to pick yourself up changes, you know, I, I would like to say, yeah, we've won 10 in a row and we're still, and we're still as laser focused as we are, but, but, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, some of the times I you know lost a job in Belgium and, and you just have to, again, stay positive and, and 
get back to work at, at the art of finding a job and interviewing and, and showing it, you know, all those kind of things. And you lose in the playoffs early, usually motivates you to, to get to the off season a little quicker and start uh, thinking about things you can do better. Cool. Um, I'll give you a line. Art Howe, when he was a manager of uh, the New York Mets, had a great line through my friend, Rick Peterson. He said, you know, in other cities, and, and the reason I'm going to ask you this is because the difference between Toronto and some of the other places that you've coached, uh, in other cities that, that he coached, like in Oakland, you play 162 games. In New York, you play 162 seasons. So, so how is kind of the, the, the up and down and how do you balance that as a leader and as a teacher, especially in a city that is now used to winning in basketball and has grown so much like Toronto versus in other places you've been where maybe the winning and the losing isn't in, as important to the organization because you, you're building people up? Yeah, I mean... First of all, it's it's a whole nother level for me in general, because I really coached in some of the backwater spots of basketball and nobody really cared about winning and losing very much at all. I used to say it was the best thing about coaching in the D League. You'd lose a game on the road and nobody asked you a question about it after the game. <laughs> you know, there was no media there to even say, what happened, coach? Or what would you have done different? Um, so just the um, big city international feel and the the uh, constant, you guys know in the NBA, it's a constant media thing. Every day at practice, there's dozens of reporters there every day. And obviously before and after every game is, is um, the explanations of what you're gonna do and then what you could have done better uh, afterwards. Um, but it's good. I mean, listen, a couple things, I, I would say this. Um, I, I uh, try really hard to be respectful and, and even uh, I would say show some kindness towards the media. Mm. I just think that in general, if people can sense that I'm being kind to them, it, it gives a, in this world right now, uh, some positivity out there. E even when I'm completely exhausted and just got my, my backside handed to me, you know, I try to take a couple deep breaths and, you know, and say, hey, Doug, good question. Let me answer it and let me, let me do it with some civility and again, some kindness. I, I, I would share this story with you if you if if you got time. Um, of one of the things I do going into games or playoffs is is I I have um, our PR department get me all the press conferences from the opposing coach and re put them all on one reel for a long time. Maybe it's a couple hours long, and I listen to all of them because I'm I'm searching for information. Something they something they say that they, they really like this guy, they don't like this guy, or this guy's playing really good, or don't be surprised if this guy, whatever. But but what I what I do learn, I did learn on some of those is that, you know, the the PR people were sometimes short, I think, with hmm. the media. Uh, the coach was short with them. I think, you know, there was almost like this angst going back and forth between the whole the whole three, the the PR, the coach, and the media, even when the team was really good. You know, so so I, I kind of watch them and to contact our PR department, say, listen, we're going to be we're going to be kinder and let's let's continue to 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 be nice. You know, I don't think it's that much to ask. That's a, that's that's a long right. answer. No, that's a good thing to hear. I got Joe, if you don't mind, uh, I'm curious, shifting gears a little bit. Um, Nick, I, I think it's um, kind of a, a given that many of us think of professional sports coaches as workaholics, like one dimensional, you're, you're zoned in, that's all you do. But I do know enough about your book and your background to know that you're a musician. Um, and it sounds like a pretty avid musician. 
is that your outlet to find some balance with your job? Yeah, for, first of all, I got I got to clarify. I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself a musician. I, I do love music, and I try. I'm trying hard to to learn how to play a few things. And um, anyway, two things. One is um, they say that working at music uh, stimulates a creative side of you, and I and I I feel it. I I believe it does for me, and I continue to do it. Hopefully that and see some benefits in my coaching to remain creative, right? And two, you already mentioned the other one. I just love it. I, I, I like when I'm on the road, I just love sitting in my room and I'll watch 15, 20 minutes of game film and then I'll turn it off and play the guitar for 15 minutes and then turn it back on. It just, it's a good rhythm for me and a good re-energizer and just a good uh, fun way to pass the time for me. Who just gets to choose the music at your practices? Is it you or the players? Well, most of the time it's the players, but there's every, every now and then I'll come in and say it's a, it's a, you know, a Nick Nurse day or Nate Bjorkman, one of my, one of my assistant coaches, you know, and, and uh, they'll play some, you know, how it is, little older tunes, you know. All I right, so what's, what's say, on, what's on say, but, you know, we'll go Michael Jackson, Earth, Wind and Fire, well, you know, those, right. kind, those kind of things. <laughs> it's, it's good to, it's good to expose the young ones to some yeah. of the classics. Culture. It sounds like you're doing yeah, that. A little culture. We got a DJ though at practice. So he, oh, wow. Um, he uh, he actually gets to choose a lot of them too, but oh. he gets closely he gets he gets closely guided by the team before anybody before I show up for practice. Anyway, let's put it that way. Sounds like a good gig, Joe. Yeah, and the DJ for for a basketball team. Yeah, Nick, um, and I know we only have you for a couple more minutes. I, I have two questions, and we're going to bring up the glass question at the end, which my students want us to ask. But um, you and Pop and a couple of other guys. Um, and, and even some of the WNBA coaches and some other coaches I've seen, when you get take people on the road and you're on the road for a while, you like to get them to do other things that are cultural. Like in the book, it mentions you going to Hamilton and some of the other things that you've done. And when I was at the Sixers, we actually, John Lucas took us on the entire tour of the OJ Simpson trial, which was amazing. And then another time we went to, um, uh, in Dallas, we went to try and trace the whole Kennedy shooting. Mm -hmm. um, do you get buy-in from just some players? Does that come from the top and say, yes, we're going to do this from the captains? Or do you kind of let people pick and choose if they want to be involved in those type of things or not? Yep. There we go. <laughs> good answer. Yes, is the answer to both of those. So, so there's once in a while where we say, hey, I'm a, I, I, you know, maybe at the start of the year, I say to uh, the, the cap, you know, the leaders of the team, we, I need you. I need you to commit to one, one thing or two things for the year. And I need you to get everybody to go on with me. And then there's times where we'll just, you know, we'll throw it out there as an invite and say, you can come if you want to. So, so both. Yeah, cool. It's yeah. a great, it's a great experience. I think, especially when you break up the road and you're able to do that. And it's amazing sometimes the feedback you get from people who say, I had no idea about that. And they, it suddenly becomes something that becomes a topic probably creates a little bit of a diversion too, I would hope, from time to time. Yeah, it's great. It's a talent. I, I love I love to, as you guys do, study, you know, people in different industries at the top of their game. And it's good, I think, to let the players see how talented these people are and a whole nother uh, industry of uh, stardom, right? You know? Yep, yep. Um, Tom, I'm going to ask the glass question and then do we want to get to, we have two questions that we'd like to ask people that, that I'll let Tom lead. One is, how do you stay current on everything that's going on? And then 
for people that come to you who are either starting out in a career and you've had some pretty interesting startup experiences or transitioning, what's the advice you give people? But before that, there's a story in the book about glasses and my students wanted me to ask this. So tell the story about how you went from still wearing glasses, but with a little bit of a, a take and why that came about and who influenced you on, on wearing clear glasses now, even though you have uh, eye surgery. Well, I wore glasses uh, from college all the way through to uh, my first week of practice as an NBA assistant coach. And about practice number two, I think it was, I took a, a ball about, I don't know, 65 miles an hour into, <laughs> into oh, the way yeah. I shattered my glasses. And as an assistant, you're out on the court working with the players quite a bit. And I said, I got to go get some late. I got to get LASIK uh, surgery. So I did. Uh, get the LASIK. So I didn't need the glasses. I didn't really tell anybody. We were in training camp and, and went to the first uh, preseason game. And, and I get there after the game is televised and got a whole bunch of messages on my phone from my sister and my mom's called a bunch of times. And I quick call mom back. What's wrong? She goes, well, why weren't you at the game? And I said, oh, mom, I forgot to tell you, I got LASIK. So um, I didn't have my glass. I was sitting there at the bench, but I didn't have my glasses on. She said, you go put those glasses back on so I can find you when I'm watching the games <laughs> on television. So I said, all right, mom. I went and I went and got a pair of fake glass. I call them my invisible glasses. And um, I wear those at the games and I still wear them. Still oh, that's wear funny. Them. That's a great story. Good, good one, Joe. So, yeah. so Nick, how do you, how do you keep up with everything? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Who do you follow? Tell, tell us about how you stay current, as Joe said. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm probably a lot like you guys. I'm a I'm a big podcast uh, person. I've got two young boys, so I go to bed pretty early, but I don't necessarily go to sleep. Um, I get get land and I listen to a lot of things. I'm a I'm a big NPR follower as well to stay current on that. I'm I got I got those kind of things going most most every night. Um, again, I try I try to. I'm an avid reader. I've been trying to. Uh, you probably see in my background there quite a few books. I'm trying to educate myself on some of the social uh, justice issues as well in, in the, the States. I just read a great book called The Color of Water. If you've ever heard of that one, it's, a, it's an amazing book. Um, and, and as far as advice, I, you know, from, from my standpoint, I always tell young coaches to, to try to get yourself in a head coaching situation. And I know that isn't always easy, but there's, there's, I always say I had a thousand games officially, you know, in all these little leagues, but I had another 1000 uh, games unofficial in summer camps and in um, uh, Europe and the, in the Adidas nation camps and the long beach summer league and the USBL and all these places. I was just trying to get a group of guys together and see if I could develop some chemistry, get them to play hard and figure out what their roles were, even if it was only for five days in a summertime camp. And I think that's invaluable experience to get up in front of a team. How do you, um, and before we let you go, which we didn't really touch on, but social media, do you, I don't think you have an account or I don't want to admit you have an account, but do you, do you stay abreast of kind of what's going on through social? Do you think social is valuable to, to helping you and your coaching? The only social I have is for my foundation, Nick Nurse Foundation. And I don't, I don't really run that. My people that run my foundation uh, run all that for me, but obviously, you know, you got to get messages out and you got to promote things and you got to, um, 
especially when your people are are being kind enough to donate things to you and help you with projects you want to give them give them credit social media wise um i don't know i if i ever need to know anything my pr team here usually lets me know if there's things i need to know but i've also learned that sometimes when i'm coaching the players don't get the gist of what i'm trying to say and if i say it in the media and it ends up in a tweet they end up they end up learning <laughs> somehow they hear the message through a through a through twitter better than they do on the floor at practice so i'm lear i'm learning how that goes too hey hey joe i just realized you know nick is nick is a, a modest guy and we didn't actually name the book. And I'm going to actually read this out for the audience, yep. uh, benefit of the audience. The way to wrap so this up. officially, Nick's new book, which appears to have just been published October 13, as in a few days ago, mm -hmm. is called Rapture, 15 teams, four countries, one NBA championship, and how to find a way to win damn near anywhere. Available now in bookstores near you and at Amazon, of course. So that's and great, Nick. I can't wait to read it it's a great life experience and worth yeah. reading whether you care about being a coach or not, because it's a lot of it is about teaching and the lessons that you learn along the way. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's what we're hoping. Thanks a lot for saying that. Appreciate yeah. it. So, so once again, uh, this has been the cusp show. I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host, Tom Richardson, our producer, Tom Cerny. We've been joined uh, for the last uh, 35 minutes or so by Nick nurse, Nick, uh, hopefully the off season isn't that long for you. Um, hopefully things kind of get back to where we are, but once again, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on guys. Really enjoyed Good luck it. next season, Nick. Once again, uh, this has been the cusp show, uh, for Tom Richardson. I'm Joe Favorito. Thanks for listening and we'll see you down the road. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.